0: I feel like we're in um, a bit like what's going on with the country at the moment that the king is on the throne but he hasn't had the proper coronation yet. And I feel like that's the place that we're in that Jesus is on the throne but we are waiting for the day where all the trumpets will blast and all the earth will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And we just say come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus come lord jesus the spirit and the bride say come lord jesus thank you that you are so holy and yet you choose to call us friend we are in awe of you and we give you our lives as a living sacrifice the reading is from luke chapter 4 verses 1 to 13. jesus full of the holy spirit returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Heavenly Father, (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing near as we gather in worship of your Son, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, would you come even further now and speak to us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm completely unravelled after that. Um, <laughs> and Lou said, it's a shame to come out of that time. Let's not come out. Let's just sit. The Lord is here. He's, he's brooding over us even now. And we want his living word to separate our souls, our emotions, our worldly stuff from his spirit to lead us and... Uh, I want to talk for a few moments from this probably most famous passage. If you've just joined us, as I know some here uh, have, we're moving through Luke's gospel over about 18 months, and we find ourselves in chapter 4. Incredibly, this wasn't even planned for the first Sunday in Lent, looking at Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So this is the time where the whole church uh, is seeking the Lord and giving extra time to join in and almost be found in the pattern of Jesus by giving over more time to seek the Lord as we look towards Easter. I just want to say um, to us all, uh, we're doing this so that he stays at the foremost of our lives. If If you think about this, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. We just get busy with other things and then we forget how incredible he is and how near he is and how resident he is within us. So this is a period really to allow him to go much deeper as we follow Jesus through this time. And I want to speak to us as a church to really help us grow and mature through looking at what happened to Jesus. That's how I'm going to use this passage. I want to look at how Jesus was tested by the devil and apply that to ourselves, because Jesus is the head of the church. That's what Colossians says, which means that whenever we gather, and if you are ever called into church leadership, you're always called into a serving ministry, because as you lead, we're actually leading by submitting to Jesus and trying to work out what he's doing. And We just had a... Incredible example of that as is Sarah-led worship. You can see she had a few songs prepared, but then what she's doing, she's trying to listen and submit to what the Holy Spirit is leading in the glorification of Jesus. And that's how we're called to live our lives. And so I want, I want to help us this morning by helping us grow mature as a church because if Jesus was tested in these things, I can bet you, bottom dollar, we are going to be tested in the same ways. And I think these tests are specific for the church, for what the church is called into, and that's where we're going to finish. So just by way of introduction, um, we're going to look at one of the longest passages where the devil appears. And if you're around our church, you'll probably have realised we don't often talk much about the devil. I believe, according to Scripture, that... The devil is the personification of the opposite of God and the source of all malevolence and evil. I've been around enough to know that this is real and is active both in the structures of how societies and nations work. Look at what rose up in the 30s in in Germany and came to fruition in, in the Third Reich. You know, look at how, despite our progress and our intelligence, we, we still seem to be destroying each other. You know, we, we have lived after about 30, 40 years of the emancipation of the role of women. And yet now we're living at a time where pornography has just taken that underground. And more women than ever are being viewed objectively through all the online horrible industry. So even as we brought it into the light, seeking to enable you know, women to you know, live lives of dignity and authority in society, now we've taken it underground and there's, you know, whatever. I'm not going off on that one. But this is where you just know that evil exists and it keeps coming at us. But as a church, our sort of stance on this is the New Testament has about 3% of scriptures that pertain to the devil. And that's about the right amount of attention that we give him. We know he exists, we're conscious of it, we're becoming wise and mature, and today's sermon will, I hope, equip us to be aware of how the enemy works in our lives, but it's about 3% of what we think about. Because the rest of it is the wonder of who the Lord is. And you see it time after time. Uh, What we think about and focus on grows big. And so you see some people who get some insight into the work of the enemy, and they focus on it, and then before you know it, they just become paranoid, they become wide-eyed, they become heavy, all of that stuff. So we're, we're just kind of trying to be like Jesus. Remember where he says, go into all creation, you'll have a few scorpions around your ankles, boom, let's get them off and that's about as much attention as we'll give it. But what he comes is with particular ways of attacking us, and they're found in this passage here. Now, a bit of context to this, we're reading Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, think about that for a minute. Jesus has just poured out of church, just come out of the eleven, he's full of God, and the, and the devil leads him to a, to a wilderness place to be tested by the devil. Jesus has just been baptized. He's just had the heavens open and the Father's spoken identity and love and uh, he's had a baptism of the Father's love at the Jordan River just before this. He's full of squidgy, gooey, you know, daddy love. Like, he's full of it. He's also had a baptism in the Spirit because he's full of the Holy Spirit as the dove came down and rested on him. So Jesus cannot on earth have been closer to God. And God, by the Spirit, leads him into the wilderness. Now why is that? And before I answer that question, if any of us here are in a wilderness moment, can you just hear from the Scriptures that it doesn't mean you've done a bad thing. Or it doesn't mean you've gone off course. Jesus is fully fulfilling his destiny. He's following the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. He's doing like Chapter 101. He's following what God's saying. And he's led into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Now why is that? And this isn't in our passage, but we'll pick it up next week. Verse 14. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and a report about it and spread about the surrounding country. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus being led by the Spirit, and then after being tested by the enemy, he emerges from the wilderness, filled with the power of the Spirit. Now what's going on, is that Jesus has been put to the test, and that test has led to Well, I don't know if he needed refining, but this is how it works with us. Jesus has been tested by the enemy, and now what's been added to him is more of the Spirit's power on his life for the ministry. Who here would like more of the power of God in their lives? Well, that is going to come... It's going to come by faith, it's going to come by worship, it's going to by studying the scriptures, it's going to come by learning from, you know, the heroes of the faith from church, all of those things. But I tell you what, it's going to come through being tested. And so if you're in a wilderness moment, can you just hear that God's intention is that you come out more on fire, more full of power, more full of glory, ready to serve him even more powerfully? And the testing, as we consecrate ourselves in response, as Jesus shows us, then Father God is able to say, man, they're not going to be tripped up by anything. Have more. They're not going to mess it up. Because if we were full of Holy Spirit bazookas without a pure heart, that's a very dangerous thing, as we'll discover in a minute. Because it will get tested, and then it's such a such a tragedy when it goes off the rails when it isn't landing on a pure foundation. Does that make sense? Now one final thing. Jesus is the focus of this passage even though we're focusing on the enemy because Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Now 40 is a key biblical figure. It comes up time and time again and Jesus goes into the wilderness led by the spirit ...for a, this defined period. it doesn't go for 32 days. It doesn't go for 78 days. He goes for 40 days. Now, two of the most powerful Old Testament figures... ...Moses and Elijah. Moses led the people of God through the wilderness... ...for 40 years. 40. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law of God... ...the Ten Commandments... ...and spent 40 days on a mountain in thick clouds of glory with God for 40 days. That's Moses. He represents the law. Elijah, he fought a mighty victory for the people of God against the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? 1 Kings 17, he calls down the fire on saturated, wet, dripping wet wood. And God answers him with fire from heaven. And the whole nation sees this and is... Oh my goodness, transformed. Their false idols are exposed and they give themselves to the living God. Jezebel, a false prophet, then intimidates Elijah and Elijah flees for his life. He runs away, 1 Kings 18, and spends 40 days, again 40, running away until he encounters God on Mount Horeb, 1 Kings 18, which is actually Mount Sinai. It's the same place. It goes to the same place that Moses met with God. And God speaks. God meets him again in a still, small voice and gives him a fresh commission. And the fresh commission is, go and anoint Elisha. And what does Elisha get? A double portion. So Elijah fights a mighty battle, 40 days of wilderness, and then comes into the double portion stuff. So all of those resonances are coming on into when Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Because according to the Sermon on the Mount, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Elijah's the big dog of the prophets in the Old Testament. He he represents all of the prophetic stuff. Moses represents all the law. And we're going to meet, guess what, when Jesus goes up the Mount of Transfiguration in about five months' time, when we get to Luke chapter 9, we're going to meet on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus gets the glory. Who are we going to meet? Moses and Elijah. Because what is Luke wanting us to get? Luke's wanting us to get that everything about God's ways, which is the law, everything about God's promises about what's to come, which is the prophets, all of those centre in the person of Jesus. This is why in 2 Corinthians it says, every single promise in Jesus is yes and amen. Not every single Ferrari, not every single bigger house, but every single one of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So we don't have anything outstanding that we don't need. He has given us all we need for life and godliness. Is all centered in this wonderful man, Jesus Christ. And what we're going to learn is how to step into it more fully by seeing how he was tested and how his power rose in response so that he was able then to go into the ministry he's called to. Is this all right? Okay, open your Bibles if you have them. Look at the screen if you've got one, or maybe it's not on the screen. I don't know, don't worry. Um, And uh, let's let's read as we go. What you're going to find in this passage is three particular tests by the devil of Jesus. And we're going to find them in, in just a moment. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. There we go. Christian life. I just want to say it again. If you're in a battle, the Christian life was never meant to be on earth, all things going great all the time. If all things are going great all the time, we may not be stepping off the edge of the boat enough, or we may be partnering with fear and fear of people and not proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. If we want to serve Jesus, there's going to be confrontation and conflict somewhere, stirred up by the enemy. There are periods of peace and favor and grace but there are periods where it's not like that. No one said hallelujah. (laughs) Verse 2, where for 40 days, there's that number, he was tempted by the devil. Think about that for a minute. We've got three particular tests going on here, but I'm thinking 40, 40 days of confrontation. 40 days of testing, 40 days where the enemy's been coming at him. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. Isn't that a great word? He was famished. He was absolutely starving. He was ravenous. He was famished. And we see Jesus' humanity. Again, it's just an encouragement He isn't like a superman floating over the things of this life. He laid that aside, Philippians 2, and emptied himself of all that could inoculate him as God from the trials of the world and became like one of us. He was famished. He was hungry. He knows what it's like to fast. Or fast, as you would say it. He knows what it's like. You know, If any of you have begun this week, it's probably not very fun now. Whenever I start a fast, it's... Hell at the start. Until you break through. And then suddenly you turn around and you're like, I don't I didn't even hunger for that anymore. And I hunger for you. And now, I, what I thought I was hungry for, ah, who cares? But I really, I love to just feast on you, Lord. And that's the point of a fast. But Jesus was famished. And here we go. Here comes the devil. And Uh, let's read it. The devil said to him, if. Now this is the primary tactic of the devil because he has no power of his own. He's only had power which is given to him by people as they turn away from God. And he has no power of his own to do stuff. So think about this. The devil doesn't come with like 10,000 sort of ghouls and goblins and, you know, banshees from hell and sort of Lord of the Rings on steroids uh, and, you know, doesn't come and start firing darts, fiery arrows and, you know, catapulting sort of slime at Jesus. It's not a physical assault. Listen to how he comes. If. Because the devil always goes after three things. He comes to distort what we, who we believe God is he comes to distort who God has said we are, and he comes to distort who God says what God says we're meant to be doing. The devil comes to distort who God is, who God says we are, and what God says we're meant to be doing by questioning, if sowing a seed, just a doubt. And you see this, although he's not taking on the nature of God directly, he's questioning God's leadership because the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness. If, ah, if. This is what he came to Adam and Eve with in the garden, didn't he? Did he, did he really say you couldn't eat from that tree? Like, what a spoil sport. Oh, maybe God's just trying to cling to power because he's got an you know, ego deficiency or something. Oh, if, did he really say that? This is how it comes. If. And he applies it to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Now Jesus has just been told that he's the Son of God. (laughs) He's just been baptised. This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. And he comes up, did he really say that? If you're the Son of God, then make this stone into bread. And Jesus is physically famished, as we know And so appearing before him is, you know, straight out of the oven, steaming hot, sourdough, maybe some golden butter next to it, hunk of cheese. It's like and his flesh is his flesh is wanting to destroy it. Just to demolish it, you know, in one sitting. If you've ever seen the miracle maker, that sort of plasticine figure, children's version of, what I love in that is we miss the, I think, the, the, the ferocity of the battle in this. Because Jesus, verse 4 says, Jesus, Jesus answered him, and so I think we imagine, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. <laughs> I'm thinking, he's starving. It's like there's a loaf of bread. It's like, and the miracle maker's great because it portrays it as this epic confrontation. Jesus like, he's like, I'm going to overcome my flesh, my appetite. It is written. That's what I imagine. And if you've ever fasted properly, this is what's going on. You're like, ah, you know, it's risen to the surface, my flesh, everything within me wants to do that. But no, it is written. One cannot live by bread alone. And that's from Deuteronomy eight verse three. And every single reader of the listener to Luke's gospel two thousand years ago, and us who know our Bibles, would finish the sentence of one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He uses scriptures to confront, but it's a particular scripture because he's saying what he's saying back to the devil is one does bread can only go so far. Bread can make me stop feeling hungry for about two hours, but then it fades away, and then I poo it out. (laughs) That's the extent to the prowess of bread. (laughs) But every word... Sorry. (laughs) Hold on. Let me just split. Is that in my sermon notes? Um, No, I haven't got any. (laughs) Um, But every word that comes from the mouth of God oh my goodness, that fills me with joy. It fills me with life. It fills me with delight. It's real life, even above my physical appetites. And Jesus can even point back to the baptism because the word, you know, when he said, this is my son, I mean, Jesus was filled with the revelation of, oh, Father, you love me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As we are, we're filled with the Father's love. And that fills us with a satisfaction that no bread could ever, ever replace. And and so what happens is the deception in our lives is that our physical appetites come in to persuade us that what they desire is really important. And Jesus says, no, we don't live by bread alone, but every word that flows from his mouth. And this is a temptation about physical comfort. It's a temptation to satisfy the hunger in our lives with false things of the earth when real spiritual hunger is satisfied by feasting on the Lord himself. And so what, what this says to me, and it says it, well, no, let me back up. Jesus is going to model this so brilliantly because do you remember when he was so thirsty, he stops at a well. And, you know, in the heat of the day, and he meets a Samaritan woman, and he ends up ministering to her, and she tells the whole city, and the whole city is transformed. And the disciples come back, and they're like, what have you been doing? Why did you get a drink from her? And Jesus says, it is my, will, my food is to do the will of my Father. Uh, sorry, that, that went through my head way quicker than my words could keep up. <laughs> <laughs> So, do you see what I mean? Jesus, what I'm trying to say is Jesus models this so brilliantly because Jesus is really thirsty. He ministers to a woman and now he's not hungry anymore. He's not thirsty anymore because he's living in the presence of God. Now, we do need to eat to live and you can't, you know, no one says, not even the Bible, you should fast more than 40 days. But it's this stance in our lives where actually earthly things cannot seduce us anymore Because that idol of comfort, we've seen you, we know what you're trying to do, and we say, no, we don't live by bread alone. We don't live by whatever it is, whatever comes to seduce us with comfort. We don't live by that script any longer. We live by every word that flows from his mouth. That's how we live. Does this make sense? I just want to challenge us, right? As the church is in the wilderness, in the nation right now, wandering around, clueless, in reinventing everything for no apparent reason that's what the church is doing in the nation right now and in that context can we emerge free of the God of comfort in our lives and I've always wondered and I, say, I speak this to myself I've always wondered if we could really see God moving powerfully in a sustained way here at Chanctonbury well, oh! yeah well, you do too <laughs> Let let me just say this. I've wondered whether we will be able to see the fullness of that surrounded by such material affluence. Because the most, most hungry, radical people for Jesus live very simple lives. And even the ones who have a lot of material abundance, if you actually get near their lives, they work very, very hard to stay in step with the voice of God. And not, they don't have this stuff clinging for their attention. And we have the challenge, because we, you know, we went out to the Arctic um, four years ago. You know, They love God, and they've got nothing. It's, so, it's like that, and it's easier, but for whatever reason, God has placed us in materially affluent Britain, and materially affluent West Sussex, and so our challenge is to see the temptation of comfort through satisfying spiritual hunger with earthly stuff, whether it's possessions, whether it's whatever, I don't know, eating too much, drinking more than we should, whatever. Finding those hits that bring us earthly pleasures from earthly things because they are they are a false God of this age, and you and I are called to live above and beyond what that is. So apply that to your own lives, but that is our challenge, living here, surrounded by massive houses, surrounded by whatevers, some people who we wear whatevers, da 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 not to desire it, the pride of the eyes, the desire for riches of this world, but to say, no, they're, they're nothing. Take my best coat. Take this. Take that. Because I live by every word that comes from him. And that is my life. It's my food. It's my will to, to respond to that. Is that all right? Okay. Right. Uh, first temptation, the false idol of comfort. Verse 5. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, Jesus, to you... I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me. That was given over at Genesis 3, by the way. doesn't mean the devil controls everything, but when you're not spiritually connected to God, you're spiritually open, and he, there, he lurks in the lies and the, the polluting of thoughts to twist up earthly systems, earthly thinking, if, we don't, if we're not connected to the Lord. That's how he's in authority over those kingdoms. They've been given over to me, and I will give it to anyone I please. Here's that word again, verse 7. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's verse 10. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So the devil brings Jesus over every kingdom in the world, every glory, every authority, kings, rulers, riches, palaces, nations. He shows them all of these. I don't know how he shows them, whether it was in vision form or he caught him up. I don't know. We don't need to know how that works scientifically. But he shows it to him and he says, you can have it all if you worship me. And so the second temptation is this. It's a temptation to power. And to influence through ill-gotten gain, to power and to influence. And Jesus says, according to the law, worship the Lord, and Him alone, serve only Him. And responds with Scripture again. You know, Jesus uses Scripture to contend with the enemy. We've got to know this stuff. He uses Scripture to contend with the enemy and points him. Said, Hang on a minute. I, I cannot worship anyone. Apart from the Lord, and overcomes that second one in that sense. Now, let me just speak. I'm not the best social commentator, but we are living in a day and age which has such a lust for power and influence. We're living in a day and age where there's such a, a form of people called influencers who have a career out of basically Instagramming their lifestyle, going from beach to whatever you know, and everybody watches them, and I don't know, it's just weird, isn't it? When you you think about it, it's like, all right, I'm just watching your life, and there you are, yeah, yeah. It's It's like, anyone from a different civilization or a different era would say, what are you doing? It's like, you're observing someone, like, on a bikini on a beach who isn't you, you're not on that particular beach they're on, and you're just watching them. It's just like... It's just so weird when you think about it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and, that, and what they're living by is, uh, what, we're, what everyone's doing is doing it. Everyone's worshipping them by watching them, because what you watch is what you love. <laughs> There's a frightening statement. Um, <laughs> uh, and they're receiving all the power and influence because they've got however many gazillion followers on whatever, and they're, you know, and that's, that's what it is. So if we're living in that culture, we have to have a radar for when power and influence touch our lives. And I'm speaking this into us now because if the church is to turn back the tide in this country, then that means we are going to have to take authority in places where we're not taking authority. But when we've taken authority, know what to do with it and not get seduced into getting off on the power and the influence. And the most dangerous place as you read church history, for a church is when it's successful, when it hits breakthrough. It's like the Old Testament. Time and again we hit prosperity in the land, peace in the land. And what do they do? They forget God. Yeah, God, ah, let's throw you out the window. Because suddenly we beef ourselves up. Look, everyone's watching me on Instagram. Look, here I am on a beach. Yeah. And this is how it works. time and again. It's, Isn't it? It's how it works, back and forth. It's, it's nothing new. And, and so So I'm just saying to us now, can we have a radar if our church grew to 5,000 or 50,000 or 5, that we don't care? Because actually what we're doing is we're following after the pattern of Jesus, who constantly lived his life in submission to the Lord. And Jesus himself, Philippians 2, is the one who emptied himself of his power, gave it away, who before he went to the cross, took off his robe, washed the disciples' feet, became like a servant to them and said, this is how you should be. He served us when he gave his life on the cross as a ransom for you and I. So how dare we get off on the power and influence that he may entrust us with through periods of breakthrough? And in the periods of breakthrough, it's like, no, it's w- we're worshipping you, worshipping the Lord, we're serving him and him alone. You know, we've been trained on this. Like, even now, right? Has anyone got on their Facebook feed, sponsored thing, how to, be, how to become influential? And it will tell you, look out for the right re- relationships to network with and da 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 and all of that. And it operates. And so what happens is you have a room of people, and some people will be sniffing out, okay, who's, who's, who's got the social capital here? Who's, who's the influencer in the room? And they'll make a beeline for them and make a connection and da 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 If that's in our church, let's get it out. I wonder in this room who never gets invited for dinner. And let's not be sad about that. Let's all invite someone for dinner. But let's not have these social hierarchies coming in from the world. I've always said that if we're to build a church here, in a place where there is some rural poverty, where there is some middle class, where there's some you know, upper-class landowners. Ah, my goodness. We have to be the church that Jesus intended. All tribes, all tongues, where culture doesn't play a part. And we're serving one another. And if we've got issues with that, the best way is just to serve. It really is the best way is just to serve. Um, Oh, uh, yeah, I was thinking about King David. Anointed at a young age as king of Israel. And he is the guy, apart from Jesus, of which God says, he is a man after my own heart. He's a man after my own heart. And David himself writes in Psalm 84, as a king, anointed over a whole nation, plucked from nowhere, and anointed over a whole nation. David says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than be anywhere else. I'd rather be on the welcome team of church. He's the leader. He's the guy. He's the big dog. And David's heart is, I just love being in your presence and gazing at you so much. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'll just, just hold the door open for people. I just want to be there when you're leading, Lord. I just want to be there when you're leading. And the final one is, the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem. Uh, <clears throat> placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the son of God, there you go, there's the attack on his identity again. Throw yourself down from here. The devil, after two times now, has realized scripture is Jesus' defense. So again, he steps up his game with cunning and takes a scripture and uses it improperly. He takes a scripture from Psalm 91, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Now that is true scripture. And what he, um, but the devil uses it improperly. Because what he's showing Jesus is the temptation to use God's power for yourself. Float down on clouds of angels, you know, sort of coming down off the temple roof. um, And his angels will bear you up and you will not dash your foot against the stone. um, And all of this. (laughs) Using what is God's power as creator and almighty God for his own purposes. And so the temptation behind this is the love of self. It's the love of self. It's the sort of secret desires that come to us when we've just ministered to someone and we just feel really good about ourselves. Now, it's good to feel satisfied that we've served somebody, but it's where it gets into us in our secret desires. It's where we take our eyes off the giver and place it on the gift, and we sort of get off on the thrill of of using, you know, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say? It's where we partner with our society, which is built around the celebration of the self. I don't need to sound pretty sad already. We are the first generation in history where every person projects their own face to everybody else. It's so weird. Isn't it? <laughs> you know. It, we are in this culture of self actualization self-empowerment. And sometimes, some of the revelations of God get mixed with that and they form an unholy mixture. So some of the revelation of God is that he has shared authority with us, his children. We have become, Romans 8, co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs, that means Jesus. <laughs> Everything that the Father's giving to him as an heir, as the son of God, he, we, we're the same. He shared that with us. It's unbelievable. Romans chapter 8. But when that lands on a heart which turns to itself and thinks about ourselves, and again, I'm preaching to myself, <laughs> then suddenly the revelation of our authority in Christ becomes a bit about me beefing myself up and becoming a Christian version of my influencer friends. It's like here I am. I, I I'm a child. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm a chosen. I'm a da 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 da. And what's the f- coming from? I. God has shared His authority with us so that we can be sent by Him into the world to preach the gospel, so that we can serve them, so that they might be reconciled to Him. So what flows from heaven as authority and power is meant to flow through our lives, which are yielded to him for the purposes of others, to serve everybody else. We're not really important in that. You know, John the Baptist said it, and some some places preach against what he said, but he said it, and I'm happy with what he said. He said, I must decrease, that he must increase. Right at the end of our vision as a church, 2033... I just want to say, is everyone okay? I feel like I'm like machine gunning you. It's like, you're better out from riddled with bullets when you get home. <laughs> Give me a lie down. You know, it's like, can't even face the Scotland match. It's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Our vision as a church, right, is not about having an awesome church that meets on a Sunday. It's not about however awesome that worship time was by these particular people. It, it, who cares who is the leader of, of this church? We don't want anyone to remember that. Because right at the end, it says, all we can describe where we're going is a place where God is reigning in this place. All we can describe as we stand back is that God is there. It doesn't matter, like, these particular people or a bunch of gifted people or da-da-da-da-da. Whatever, it doesn't matter. God is there. It's his church. It's his kingdom. It's his land. It's his church. And so Jesus says, hang on a minute. You're not going to trip me up by getting me to use what are God's gifts flowing from heaven through my life for the lost, the least and the lonely. You're not going to trip me up by getting me just to try them out, you know, just to try floating down on angels, clouds, you know, whatever, uh, off the top of the temple. No, no, no. It is written, Deuteronomy. me. 6 verse 16 do not put the Lord your God to the test because all of life all of what we're enjoying now is a gift given to us by God in his mercy and his grace and we are the recipients who say back to him thank you as we did so beautifully just now but that's the stance and posture of our lives thank you this is a gift you give me a fireball of holy spirit boom but that's a gift it's not about me it's a gift to serve and bless the world so that Jesus can be exalted and glorified. And so these three tests are given on Jesus. And as a member of Jesus' body, I want to bring them before us today to say, as a church, can we not submit to a God of comfort? Can we not submit to the earthly power and influence rubbish that flows around most social groups, can it not afflict us? Can we whip off the towel and wash one another's feet? Why did you laugh then? (laughs) The problem is I'll tell a joke and then no one will laugh and then I'll say something and now you're laughing. (laughs) Can we remove our robe? Ah. And can we not use what belongs to God for ourselves? But stay when God is working amongst us, focused on Him, loving Him, thankful to Him. Yeah. Is that all right? Amen. (laughs) I I think the best thing is so kind that we would clap I'm not saying not to but the best thing that would be is if you and I go further in living radically towards the Lord in our lives that's the best thing because the church in this, in this nation is in a wilderness moment and we, we are We have got to partner with the Holy Spirit as he purifies the church. Think about it. The reason the Lord is stirring up holiness, he's stirring up character, he's stirring up all these things, is not because we're entering a sort of dogged, sterile season where everybody's just boring. No. I mean, a week ago we were like full of joy and da-da-da-da-da. That's not, no. He's stirring it up because we might be in a low point But that's the point at which God moves in and he brings revival. (laughs) And I think what we're we're being prepared for is to be able to be ready for what God has in store for us. And is it any wonder that he'd be stirring up purity, holiness in a decadent, boundaryless culture that we live in? And I say that not to be critical, but I say it for the sake of our young people, our children, who've never been taught to say no. You know, who've never been taught that actually, like... Two pints are enough. Don't look at that. You know, we're in a boundaryless culture tuned to just say yes to every earthly pleasure because it's like, well, if it makes you feel better, if, it, if it's you being you, da, da, da. no, that is what's being proclaimed and preached in our schools. And the problem is, I'm not condemning that in a thing and of itself, I'm saying it is a, it is a false truth. Because the only thing that will satisfy our hearts, the only thing that will satisfy our lives, the only thing that will bring everlasting peace and joy is Jesus, is the Father, is the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing. And we've dilly-dallied as a church with, with stuff. And even now, in our secret minds, we just sort of justify our little bad habits by saying i'm not as bad as that person or i'm not like at least i'm not like that or you know i just think to ourselves i don't know how big our church is now but come on we've got a world dying out there so what are we doing you know we've got to be preaching the gospel tomorrow in our lives letting people know about jesus letting people know that there's there's eternal life for everyone if you believe and it stands up to scrutiny we need to be healing the sick. We need to be casting out the demons and raising the dead. We need to be driving forward in our lives, as I know that you are brilliantly. Well, I just think in this, in this moment, the nation's waiting for the church, and I think I need to hand over to you now, because I, I'm just, I'm grieved at what the church is doing to the Holy Spirit. And God will not let it go. And it's being restored, but our third church value is revival starts with me. So the thing that I'd love you to do is to say, I'm reviving myself by exposing in my my own life the things where I just, I go towards earthly comforts rather than running to the Lord. You know, Psalm 16 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything you've ever needed is in him. Everything you've ever wanted is in him. And that is what the gospel is, amen.